Hello, everybody. Welcome to a brand new episode, kicking off the new season of the One Moment Podcast. We have a new episode of Convos with Mo, and we have today's guest, who is an icon, a legend, and a cultural architect, Ms. Shanti Doss. And if you are unfamiliar with who Shanti Doss is, don't worry. I'm going to get you up to speed. Shanti Doss is an accomplished entertainment industry veteran, speaker, author, and philanthropist. As the founder of Mebo, Mybo, uh, LLC, Mind and Body Wellness, and Silence the Shame, uh, Shanti Doss has pivoted and made it her life's mission to promote mental health awareness and advocate for overall health and well-being. Doss is a former LaFace Records music, music executive and prominent music industry veteran who has paved the way for many artists during the past three decades. She's worked closely with some of our favorite hip-hop artists, especially uh, Atlanta's own Outkast, The Dungeon Family, Usher, Goody Mob, and other music icons. So without further ado, we're going to start today's interview with Miss Shanti Doss. How are you today? Thank you so much for joining us and being on today's show. I am great. How are you? I am fantastic. It is a beautiful day in Atlanta. So I'm soaking up the last, you know, couple of days of summer. Yes, so- it's so hot in hot Atlanta. <laughs> very, very hot. Um, so, you know, I gave you this amazing intro. I would love for you to tell us about yourself if I missed anything that you want people to know about you. Oh, thank you so much. So again, yeah, I am an Atlanta native. Um, really a, a child of the product of Wakanda, as I like to <laughs> finally refer to Atlanta. It's just been such a joy and pleasure growing up in this city and watching what it has been able to do in terms of moving the culture forward. And so I was very young when I got the music bug. I started interning at, um, Capitol Records, but actually even before that, when I was in high school at Mace High School, I started shadowing the program director at Atlanta's on V103. So that was really great. And it was just a dream come true for me to be able to end up working in music and, and having Players Ball actually be the very first record that I worked was pretty, pretty cool. Oh, wow. That's amazing. So you are from Southwest Atlanta, correct? I am. I'm from the Swats. Yes, the Swats. I actually live in the Swats. So this is... Do you? Amazing. So the synergy is perfect. Um, So I was going to ask you, you know, you're from like old Atlanta. You are from, you know, you lived in Atlanta during a time where Atlanta was like burgeoning and it was like growing and it was just such a great place for culture and just Mm -hmm. a great place to live. How do you think that has contributed to who you are today and what you do? Great question. Yeah. So being from old Atlanta, I think it, it just instilled this sense of pride in me. Mm-hmm. You know, we didn't have a lot growing up. We initially, my family first lived in Dixie Hills, which is kind of near Turner High School, getting towards downtown Atlanta. And then when my my dad died when I was seven months old, uh, my mom wanted to just move us all into kind of a better neighborhood and, and to try to get us in some different schools. And so growing up in Southwest Atlanta, I tell people it is pretty special. Um, I think it was often, you know, just one of the hidden secrets in America for many, many years, especially for people of color, because it was never an, an issue of would I succeed? It was how I would succeed. Because again, you know, like I said, we didn't have a lot, but all of my friends' parents were either like lawyers and doctors or civil rights leaders or school teachers and educators and you know, ministers, pastors, you know, doing so much in the community that I was like, who are these, you know, I I live again in this world of utopia for African-Americans because 
seeing success, you know, was not scarce growing up in Southwest Atlanta. So I knew that I wanted to, you know, be a leader in the community. I just had to figure out, you know, what that pathway looked like for me. But I think that was what the, the made Atlanta so special growing up because, you know, success was all around us. Yes, this this part of Atlanta is, is very, very special. And I can see how, you know, that contributed to all of your success and, and being a dreamer and a doer. And one thing one thing about um, the One Minute podcast is we really advocate and really stress about being a dreamer and a doer. Mm-hmm. Like it's one thing to have a dream, but it's like, what are you doing to actually set that thing into motion so that it can actually come true? And mm-hmm. so the question I have for you is what makes you a dreamer and a doer? Like what, where do you get your drive from? What, what inspired you to go after your dreams and to dream big and, and in color? Yeah, I love that. And so again, just shout out to what you're doing and your show, um, the wait one more minute show. <laughs> so what makes me a dreamer? Wow. Um, my sister was eight and a half years older than me. And so my father, full transparency, he died by suicide when we were young. Mm-hmm. And so it was really tough on us. And we didn't go to counseling. We didn't go to therapy or any of that. And so uh, it was a lot on my mother. She, you know, had to work multiple jobs to make ends meet. And my extended family, my uncles helped us. And I watched my sister literally at a very young age step up and help to raise my brother and I to assist my mother. And she ended up putting herself through Georgia State University, going on to get her master's, becoming a CPA. And I was like, man, if she can do it after all the adversity and things that we've gone through, then certainly I can. So, you know, I have always, I'm, I'm a Pisces, I'm left-handed, I'm a creative person. Mm-hmm. So I always just love music and, and creativity. And um, again, growing up in Southwest Atlanta, I understood Black excellence at a very young age. So that made me a dreamer. You know, going to Benjamin E. Mays High School, but also understanding the rich history of Dr. Mays, um, who the school was named after, or having friends that went to Frederick Douglass High School, but understanding the impact of of Mr. Frederick Del- Douglass in the history of Atlanta and Black America, you know, it made me want to succeed, you know, even in career days in high school. Like I took that stuff seriously when people would come and talk to us and tell us about their careers and all that they've achieved. You know, I, I wanted to make something of myself and I always just dreamed of having this legacy that, you know, would really be respectful for my family and and something that they would be proud of. But more importantly, something that the people coming behind me could be proud of. I I don't know. I think I've always been an old soul too, because I hung out with the elders and like my grandmother and my uncles, um, my play uncles, parents, I used to hang out with them growing up. And so I listened to my elders and I understood the struggle and what it took for us as black folks to achieve success at critical times, whether it's during the Jim Crow days or, you know, even just dealing with regular, you know, discrimination and things, you know, with living in the South. And so I always wanted to grow up and not just have a good job, but be somebody that the community was proud of. So I think it was just the community. It was my my sister and then my mom watching her overcome the adversity of having a husband die from suicide, but still raising three children that were successful. Well, I can definitely relate to that. So I lost my father 13 years ago. And oh, so um, I, you know, lost grandparents and family members and friends and 
there's something about loss that just like puts a battery in your back to just like really take advantage of time and opportunity. And Mm so I think that is a beautiful story to talk about how your sister, you know, really helped to motivate you and inspire you, whether she knew it or not. So I feel like Mm -hmm. as black women, we are, one thing we do is we, it's either like fight or flight and we always, always find a way to fly. So that is um, quite amazing. And I love that you were able to kind of work through your grief or work through your loss at such a young age to catapult you into success in what you're doing now. Um, and so we're going to pivot just a little bit. So we know that you are, you know, I've been a fan of yours for years. I follow you. Oh, really? Yes, of course. You know, I work in entertainment. Um, part of the reason I work in entertainment and television um, was mostly because of my late father, but also mm-hmm. because of women like you. So I've been following you on Instagram for a very long time. I love when you like post your old throwback photos from like the night <laughs> you were like an Thank it you. girl, a cool <laughs> girl. You know, you were just like, you know, one of the only women in that industry kind of moving the needle. We know, I just watched a documentary on Netflix about like women in hip hop, not just like the artists, but the women that mm-hmm. helped to like birth hip hop and propel it forward. Mm-hmm. And so in celebration of the 50th anniversary of hip hop, I mean, it is, that is such a huge milestone. Like who knew that 50 years ago, you know, people in the Bronx would start a movement that will last a lifetime and really shift culture. When did you fall in love with hip hop? Like what was your mom? You were like, okay, I love this. I want to be a part of this. Like, how did you feel? What What was that moment like? Yeah, you know, it was, for me, it was, I was probably in middle school, um, I think the mid eighties and hip hop was, you know, bubbling under, actually before that, I'm sorry, let me, let me go back. It was like 1980 and I was in elementary school, probably getting ready to head into middle school. And I heard this song called Rapper's Delight from Sugar Hill Gang and my sister, because her friend worked at the radio station, we would get 12 inch records. And so I had all these 12 inches and, and we would be playing this music. And I just was like, this beat is crazy. Like, and I also love to dance. So growing up, my, my family would have parties in our garage. And so I would see my family dance. And so I always loved to dance. And I was like five years old trying to sneak into the party <laughs> when I couldn't. So music was always a big part of our family. And so you know, grew up on stuff like Earth, Wind & Fire, Prince, you know, all those legacy R&B groups that eventually kind of turned pop. But once hip hop came around, I was like, what is this beat? Like, and and it just sounded like they were kind of talking, but they were like, you know, getting, you know, their frustrations out. And I was like, that's really me. And it just resonated with me and the things that I was going through as a, as a tween and and kid of the culture. And so I just fell in love with the beats and I would often dance to it. I was even in a dance group in high school. And so I used to literally take my cassette tapes because back in the, you know, late in the early to late eighties, hip hop wasn't being played on terrestrial radio. You you could only hear hip hop on the weekend or if the DJ would mix it in on a mix show. And so I would literally take my cassette tape and record like when the radio station would go live at the clubs in Atlanta, like live at the San Susie, I'm really dating myself. <laughs> but back in the day and and I just fell in love with the music and my mom used to be like, turn that stuff down. What's all that? But it was just it was so me and and I just fell in love with it. And and I never looked back. Like I knew I either had to work in this business or have something to do with it or be on the radio actually playing the music. And and when I went to college you know, I started working at the radio station. I used to co-produce a hip hop show on Saturday nights 
I was assistant promotions director at the radio station. And then I also had an overnight shift. So music has always been a part of my life. And it just inspired me again to beat the odds, you know, to go against the grain and to do something that was different. And so um, my family didn't quite understand what going into the music industry meant because <laughs> it wasn't like, you know, back in the day, I said, oh, I want to be a doctor or I want to go into sports medicine. You know, those were like more tangible type of careers that you could like put your finger on, you know, you knew people in the community that had those jobs, but the music industry was different for, for us and folks in black culture. And we were kind of creating, you know, what this industry would look like, you know, in the late eighties and early nineties and kind of laying out our own path. So it wasn't a lot of history there. Um, so my mom was like, you want to do what? <laughs> but I didn't give up on it. You know, I was very much a very committed very much a hustler in a good sense of the word. And so I networked my way through conventions in Atlanta, like Jack the Rapper and Million Dollar Record Pool Conference that used to come here. And, you know, all those things that I could do to just really immerse myself in the culture of music and hip hop. So speaking of that, so, you know, non-traditional, you're like, mama won't work in music industry. She was like, what is that? You know, <laughs> traditional way for black people to build wealth back in the day was to be a doctor, a lawyer, all those things, you know, being a creative, you know, working yes. at the bank, whatever. <laughs> yes. You know, being a creative now is like the thing to do, but back in the day it wasn't like, it was just like, it was unheard of and it seemed like unnatural and unreal. Mm-hmm. How, what, what was your first job in the music industry? And like, what did you learn from that? Like, what was your first project? What artists did you work with? Like, give us like a little landscape of what that felt like. Absolutely. So it was interesting. As I mentioned, I was doing a lot in college. And so I was like, well, I need to get an internship. So the first internship that I ever received was actually with the Arsenio Hall show, which was, you know, a big TV show back in the day. And it was in Los Angeles. And my mom was like, nope, (laughs) we don't have money to go to L.A. You know, they're not really paying you much. The stipend is not going to take care of, you know, a car and all that. So long story short, I was devastated. So I ended up talking to the guy that let me used to shadow him at the radio station. And so he connected me to his friend who worked at Capitol Records, a, a gentleman by the name of Keith Fry, who I call my industry dad. Keith Fry was the vice president of promotion, radio promotions at Capitol Records here in Atlanta. The office was up in Norcross at the SEMA branch. Back in the day, there were distribution companies. Now everything is distributed digitally. So you don't have to have those big distribution warehouses anymore, but there were distribution companies. So Worked at Capitol Records and I created like all the promotional flyers for like MC wow. Hammer, uh, BB and CC Winan. Um, oh gosh. Oh, uh, I want to say Shanice was on the label. It was so many other like young black artists back in the day on Capitol Records that I got to work with. But one of my favorites, like I said, was MC Hammer and that was like a real fun thing for me. So I was the liaison with the national promotion staff, making sure that they had all the little promo items that they needed um, as they were going to radio, you know, to market to the program directors and stuff. So I, and his assistant was pregnant at the time. Shout out to um, Dee Dee Hibbler, who is, well, formerly Dee Dee Murray. She's Peaches on the Outcast album. So Dee Dee was in this job full time, but was pregnant with her daughter and needed somebody to replace her. So how about I was making like $400 a week in oh. college? 
That's a lot of money. <laughs> it is. So it was a paid internship and they said I did so well that they brought me back a second year. And that's how I got to meet Tisha Campbell, who was an artist on Capitol Records at the time. She's now one of my best friends to this day. <laughs> Cause I asked the guy, could I shadow him while Tisha was in town? Um, that's just kind of a fun tidbit. Wow. But anyway, um, so I did that for two summers and then it came time in 1993 when I graduated. I didn't have a job right out of college, but I knew I needed to do something. So I took a free internship with Sony Music. And basically what I did was I was a retail intern. So I used to go to like Tower Records, all the retail stores, and I would have to do inventory, count up all the product that we had left in the store. So that gave me a really good sense of retail and what that meant. So I was, you know, again, adding to my skill set of and, and, and things that I could do in music. And so, again, I tell people don't burn bridges because you never know who's going to end up where. So again, my industry dad stopped working for Capital, started consulting with L.A. Reid and Babyface. Boom, four months after college, I got hired as national promotions director because L.A. didn't do a lot in hip hop. He focused more on R&B, rhythm and blues and pop music. Mm-hmm. So, of course, he had Tony Braxton and TLC and Damian Dame already on the label. He was like, you know, we got these projects. We got these groups coming. coming. I need somebody to work the clubs and take the 12 inches to whether it's strip clubs, radio stations, DJs, all that kind of stuff. And wow. so I got hired as a promotions director, not as an assistant. So God was good. I made $30,000 straight out of college and I never looked back. Wow. So you already the C-suite. That's that. That talks about favor. Just- it wasn't the C-suite. It was promotions director, but I already had a director's title. Right. Yeah. So that was a big deal because I felt like I did the administrative stuff in college. That's why I like when I say I was focused, I was so focused in in college that people literally thought I was working full time in the industry already while I was in college. That's amazing. I mean, I'm just grateful. And I, I just was so like I was the kid that would go to the conventions and raise my hand. You know, a lot of times you might be shy. You want to go up to anybody. Oh, that wasn't me. I'd be in at every convention, every, but I would go to the panels. I wouldn't just go to hang out and have a good time. I went to network. I went to meet people, whether it was folks like Vivian Scott Chu, um, you know, folks that I wanted, that I looked up to the late, great Karen Mason. May she rest in peace. Who was one of the baddest marketing uh, black women in the game. Like I went to conventions to meet those ladies so that one day I could, you know, again, stick my chest out and say, you know, I learned from them and now I can pour back into the next generation of black women working in music. That's amazing. Um, it, it, it's, it goes to show you when you just, you know, plant the seed, how it grows. You just have to water it and, and do the work. It's like, you know, faith without works is dead. So that's right. Yeah. That is, that's amazing how you just, you kind of, you know, made space for yourself and made a way, but was also there. Oh, yeah. You know, you got to turn lemons into lemonade, you know, yeah. you get those opportunities. Like I say, I, I, I was, of course I was hurt. I didn't have a job coming out of college and other kids had all these jobs they were boasting about, but I was like, that's okay. I'm going to go work for free because somebody's going to hire me. So again, it was never a matter of if it just when. I love that. Not if, but when that's a good nugget. Y'all let's y'all right. go ahead and write that down. Um, and so we, we kind of touched on, on the face a little bit. Um, tell us about your experience there. So you got in, L.A. Reid needed somebody. You had the perfect experience about what they needed as they kind of like, as they kind of built the other part of the label, not just focus on R&B, but hip hop. What was that like, you know, working with, you know, helping discover Outkast and Dejafin? I mean, they kind of like put Atlanta on the map. How did, how did well, you? Well, they did. And, you know, 
got to give credit where credit's due. They were already signed to the label. Um, so I only came in to kind of enhance their brilliance. So when I came into the company in 1993, LA um, was putting together the LaFace Christmas album. And so that's where Outkast's first single was launched, Players Ball, from the actual Christmas album. Mm-hmm. So I got a chance, excuse me, got a chance to market that and take it to radio and send it to the DJs and do promotional shows and that sort of thing. And that was an absolute blessing being able to go into the studio, into the original dungeon. If anybody knows Atlanta, it was over by Lakewood Stadium, which Big Boy has now kind of remixed it. And you can actually stay there now through Airbnb. But going to the original dungeon, when you walk down the steps, um, that it was just red clay, literally. And we just be sitting down there getting creative, talking about shows coming up, things we wanted to do from a marketing and promotion standpoint, being just being in the magic you know, with the Dungeon family, Rico, Ray, and Pat, and and Goody Mob, and CeeLo, and all those guys. I mean, it's an absolute dream. And I look back, and I think, and I see all the accolades that Atlanta hip-hop has gotten. And to know that, you know, I played a little part in that is is really humbling. But more importantly, I was just around greatness, you know, to watch those guys. And, and they already knew what they wanted to do. They knew how they looked. It wasn't like we had to add a lot to it. We Again, we were just there to enhance their brilliance. But it was a special time. And I remember when Outcast first went gold, I was like, you know, I don't want to just do a regular old club party for them. They're too special. We need to do something different. So that's when I threw the Southern Playalistic Cadillac Music um, cookout, which is, you know, I humbly say one of the probably most talked about events of the 90s that was a pivotal event in our culture because not a lot of people were doing mansion parties back then. Mm -hmm. So I rent this big mansion on behalf of LaFace out in Decatur. And on that stage that night, we had Outkast, Goody Mob, a young Usher, a young Diddy, young Notorious B.I.G., Buster Rhymes was there. I mean, it was magical. It was incredible and one of the greatest moments of my career. And that cookout really put me on the bat. I remember um, Outcast, I mean, L.A. Reed was married to um, Pebbles Perry Reed at the time. Perry Pebbles Reed, rather, at the time. I remember her coming up to me. She was like, you did all this? And I was very new. A lot of people didn't know me. And she was like, wow, much respect. And so I was like, oh, my God. Like, that was, came up to me and made me up. And it was so funny because um, shout out to Jaha Johnson, who is big in the entertainment industry as well. Jaha was my intern. He was wow. in school with Clark. And Jaha was my intern at the time. And L.A. was kind of like, okay, I'm trusting you on this. But they weren't really involved in a lot about the cookout. They would just let me do my thing. And it was, man, it was all God and, and Jaha and and just the rest of our crew that helped us. But, um, I mean, even MTV and BET was there. Like, it was a really big deal. So after I was able to achieve that, I knew, like, okay, I got this. I can figure it out. You know, I'm going to work 10 times as hard as the next person. Because you got to remember, like, Again, Southern hip hop, we hadn't, you know, we didn't have that respect yet, right? The Source Awards hadn't happened yet. And so being a young black female in a very male dominated industry, you know, it was a lot of challenges at times. But again, uh, I just, you know, head down and, and worked hard and made sure that the respect was given. Um, or no, I take that back, make sure that, that 
I earned the respect from the hard work, right? And then I was given the respect because, based on the hard work that I did um, and with my male counterparts, you know, not blowing me off and brushing me off, just like this little chick in the room, like, no. Um, I took on that model of the South Got Something to Say even before, you know, Dre uttered those infamous words because I was so serious about being a woman in hip hop and being accepted based on my work ethic, not just on me being a female. And so... It, you know, it was one of the greatest experiences of my life to be able to work alongside L.A. Reed and Babyface and Outkast and Goody and all our amazing producers. And, you know, Jermaine Dupree, Dallas Austin, all of them did a lot of stuff with us. And LaFace was like a family. We called it like like I used to make um, promo gear and merch for the company. And I remember making these sweatshirts, LaFace University, because it really felt like we were at an HBCU. Like wow. it was a special time. Like it was we 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 were together in the office, then we had to go out to dinner. I remember it's nothing like LA used to take the whole staff out to dinner and we'd literally be at dinner and we'd make them play songs in the restaurant and then the whole restaurant be singing the music. It was a movie. Like it was wow. basically a movie. We had so much fun. We spent holidays together, we all traveled together. Like it was it was a really beautiful thing. And that was probably the most special time in my career. Once I got to New York, that was cool. It was great. I started, you know, getting the promotions and all of that, but it didn't come without headaches. But LaFace was just a magical time. And it was also a time again, it was the nineties. It was when Atlanta culture was being solidified and people really finally respected Atlanta as like this global city. And so it was a really pivotal moment in Southern culture and Southern music. You said something that, that caught my attention about being like a woman to help, you know, be the architect for culture in Atlanta, you know, has helped it morph into what it is now. How did being a, a woman in industry, I'm sure there were other women, but I'm sure there weren't a lot. How did that shape your view of the world? Uh, I mean, you know, again, <laughs> There, there were women like a, a Didi Hibbler who were here in Atlanta, you know, making noise and doing things or Carol Blackman on the radio who was making things happen and people I looked up to, but it was tough at first. But like I said, um, because I had so many great musicians to work with, um, it definitely afforded me the opportunity to have doors open for me. I just had to go in and, and, and prove myself once I got through those doors or once I had that seat at the table, it was up to me to kind of take it and run with it from there. Um, but there have been, you know, women in Atlanta history from like, you know, Mayor Shirley Franklin, so many others that we looked up to. It was just a matter of carrying the torch and continuing to, to set the pace and set the tone, um, for Atlanta women in hip hop. Like, you know, I love Dr. Joycelyn Wilson, who is a scholar. And hip hop historian, as I would say it, um, she's a professor at Georgia Tech, but also went to my high school. But to to be able to pave the way for women like that, it just it felt good. Um, and it felt good to know that, you know, women were just as much a part of the movement mm -hmm. and um, if not just as important, quite honestly, um, to making the movement happen. So how, so the next question I have for you is how did you transition from music to mental health? It seems like they seem like two different, two totally different worlds. Both mm -hmm. are equally as important. And in some ways they, they mirror and can complement each other. How did you make that jump from having your dream job to doing something that is much more meaningful or, or much more impactful? Yeah. And much more humbling, quite honestly. Yeah. Um, <laughs> So as I mentioned, my dad died by suicide. So um, 
a little quick synopsis is just, you know, once I started working in music, um, I would say after I left LaFace Records and moved up to New York City, things started, you know, I started dealing with politics in the workplace and uh, I, I, I'm sure I was dealing with a little bit of um, FOMO of missing out, being at home, missing Atlanta um, and just dealing with toxicity in the workplace, which I had never experienced before. And so, you know, back in the late 90s, early 2000s, we didn't talk about self-care and wellness. It wasn't a part of everyday vernacular the way it is in culture now. And so I don't feel like I had healthy ways to cope back then. And I didn't really, um, you know, I worked all the time. I mean, just, you know, literally sometimes 16, 18 hour days on and off of airplanes. And don't get me wrong. I was doing what I wanted to do. I asked for this. But I didn't understand what it meant to have a work-life balance. And so I think that as I started getting a little older, that was the first time I was like, hmm, okay, this is different. <laughs> Where are these unfamiliar feelings coming from? And these are, some, these, you know, I'm having these thoughts that I had never had before. And so I was like, dang, is something wrong with me since my dad took his own life? And so that was always in the back of my head. So I went through a few, like, challenges of anxiety and depression in the early 2000s. That's when I first went to therapy. And, you know, I went for about three months and I thought everything was okay. So I kind of immersed myself back into my job and started, uh, you know, climbing my way up in Columbia Records, even got to do marketing for Prince, which was a once in a lifetime opportunity. So things were great for a while. Then I moved over to Universal Motown Records. Again, you know, getting older, still not really eating healthy, on the go, on the move all the time. Just didn't have that that balance of mind and body wellness. And I think I just got burnt out with the industry and the business. Um, again, dealing with toxicity in the workplace, not going to therapy, not having any sort of balance. And I remember I was making almost a half million dollars a year, corner office, Range Rover, all of that, right? And I would go into my office and take naps. Like I had a really great office, big office with a sofa, big screen TV, all that. And I'm literally going in the office, taking a nap at one o'clock. I told my assistant, don't call me unless it's Sylvia. And that was not me. I'm type A personality, worker B. I've been working since I've been having side jobs since I was literally 11, 12 years old. And so I was like, who is this person? I didn't recognize myself at times. And I was having some mental health challenges. And that led to physical health challenges. I was riding uptown in a taxi one day and my whole right side went numb. I got diagnosed with cervical spinal stenosis, which is a direct result of stress. And finally, my sister was like, what are you doing? Like, you're just, you're letting yourself fall apart. You're not happy. You're not healthy. And it's just not a good look. And so I ended up quitting and walking away and coming back home. So I was home in 2010 and I started consulting for some R&B um, artists like Johnny Gill, Kelly Price, Vivian Green, and did that for a few years. And I started a, a really successful event here called ATL Live on the Park that ran for 10 years. It was a music showcase. But in 2014, I started just, you know, the money, some months were good with the clients. So I did went through some financial difficulties. And then my best friend died by suicide in 2014. And I talked to her the day before it happened. That was really probably a pivotal moment, pivotal moment that made me go on this downward spiral. I was blaming myself for her suicide and 
Wow. And I started unpacking a lot of the unresolved trauma that I had never dealt with from my own dad's suicide. And one thing led to another. And I came close to taking some pills in 2015. And that's when I knew that um, it was kind of like a really low, low, low point for me. And I got the help that I needed and started openly talking about my struggles and what I was going through. And I just realized so many of my peers in music and people were like, Oh my God, thank you so much for speaking out. Are people in my community? Nobody. And you got to remember this 2015, way before the pandemic, nobody's talking about mental health like that. Yeah. And especially in our community. And so I just used it as um, an opportunity to not only share and get things off my chest, but to pour back into others. And it was extremely scary. I was embarrassed many times and. For a while, like I had stopped going to L.A. for Grammy Week and BET Week, even though my friends were still working in the game and I knew I could get into that stuff. I, I didn't want to come up to people where they would say, oh, what you been doing? Oh, yeah, I thought about killing myself. And I'm, you know, a hot mess. And so once I got the help that I needed and got out of my head and 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 let go of the shame and the embarrassment and silence my own shame, if you will, that's when Silence of Shame started as a hashtag and really started taking off. And I knew that God had other plans for me and that it wasn't just one legacy of Shanti, the music executive executive. It was Shanti, um, you know, having this voice in cult in culture, but from a different perspective. And so I eventually found myself at the intersection of health and culture. And here we are today. I love that. Um, I, and I think it's so important. And it's so interesting that, you, this is the first episode of my new season for my podcast because this year for me, I've really been very focused on my own mental health, being stressed out, you know, being a black woman, you know, wanting to lot, climb the ladder of success and do different things. And most times people don't take the time to one, give themselves grace and go talk to someone because talking to someone can literally save your life or can make you have a different perspective or view things differently. Cause sometimes it's not as always as bad as what it seems. Absolutely. And, and we all experience loss, but it's about how you how you deal with it and how you handle it and how you kind of work through it. So right. I'm so happy that you were so transparent and shared that story with us to kind of talk about your own experiences. And, you know, it can definitely help someone and, and help someone kind of change their own narrative. And mm-hmm. so you talked about silence to shame and how that was born. And, you know, how, you know, I was reading up about how, you know, you were able to partner silence to shame with artists to kind of help them, you know, work through their own their own traumas and situations. We see a lot of artists that are strung out on drugs or have had, you know, have had to endure loss and, you know, people walk out of their lives. So it's so great that you have used your purpose to not only help move music forward, but move people forward and help build communities. I think that's really important. And so we have silence to shame and, you know, we're here to talk about, you know, your experience as a, as a black woman in hip hop and as a change maker, but we're also here to talk about your new podcast. So I would love for you to tell us about your new show and what makes you really excited about your latest adventure uh, and latest adventure and what makes it different from Silence to Shame or how are they the same? Absolutely. So, yes, I am super excited to share about my new podcast. And it's just such a full circle moment because, as I mentioned, in college, my major was television, radio and film. I was on the uh, radio station, so I was in front of the mic 
But I, once I got into the music industry, you know, I stepped away from the mic, if you will. So it's an honor to be back in front of a microphone, you know, being able to interview people and impact culture in that way. And so it's interesting. This kind of started a little bit during the like the idea that started during the pandemic. Um I started a, a yeah, it's called, it was called Yeah Wellness, Y-E-A-H. It was a wellness check-in basically on Instagram. And I started interviewing all these hip hop artists, a few athletes and actors, but I interviewed like Common and Chuck D from Public Enemy and Tisha Campbell and Swiss Beats and all these incredible people, Chris Weber, the basketball player. And I thought, wow, I really enjoyed this. But more importantly, people were telling me like, wow, you're really good. You have great interview skills. And it was engaging and it was so interesting. And you're talking about things that we don't normally talk about. And so um, I, I, I eventually, um, once the pandemic was over, I kind of just jumped back into being CEO of Silence of Shame and running my day-to-day nonprofit. But I enjoyed doing that so much that I was like, I really want my own show. And so you know how it is. Things take a couple of years to really come back, come into fruition rather. So once I did that, I had gone through some physical health issues also. Um, I had to have my gallbladder removed, but I was really sick before that. And then I was in the hospital on two different occasions and it freaked me out. And I thought, wow, uh, here I am approaching, you know, 50 and I'm having these physical health challenges. It really is about mental and physical health. And that's when the light went off. And I was like, hmm. Mental and physical, M-I for mind, B-O for body. That's when I decided to rename my personal for-profit company to Mebo. So it's Mebo LLC. And then I said, I'm going to name my show the Mebo Show, M-I for mind, B-O for body. And I want to be able to talk to different people about not only mental health, which one of, you know what I've been able to do through Silence of Shame, but also what they're going through from a physical health perspective, because they really do go hand in hand and they can affect one another in so many different ways and aspects. And so started the Mebo show and um, ended up deciding to uh, dedicate season one to Hip Hop 50 because, you know, again, I am a, a product of hip hop and the culture. And I just thought it would be a nice way to celebrate the anniversary of hip hop. And here we are, you know, I've had, you know, uh, four, four, we have four episodes out in the marketplace now. The first one was talking to legendary DMC from the group Run DMC, and he talked to us about his mental health journey. Um, the second episode featured the one and only the human beatbox, Mr. Dougie Fresh, and we featured his um, nonprofit, which is Hip Hop Public Health, and his founder, Dr. Williams, um, and they do a lot around stroke prevention, and he's like a world-renowned doctor um, in New York City. The third episode featured Big Tigger, uh, who is a radio announcer, TV personality, and former host of BET's Rap City for many, many years. Tigger, most people didn't know, had a hit replacement just last year, so we could get into that. And then the episode um, that I was also proud of was our first live podcast that we did, which um, featured Eric Sermon of the legendary group EPMD. And Eric actually had a heart attack in 2011, so he talked wow. to us about heart disease and hip-hop. And then, you know, the episode I'm really proud of also uh, featured Yo-Yo and MC Light, um, which is out now. And we talked about women's health issues, everything from menopause to mental health and just being a woman in hip hop. And we got David Banner coming. We got Charlemagne coming. 
We got Dr. Dre. He used to be on your MTV Raps, who unfortunately had to have his leg amputated. So, I mean, we're dealing with so many issues that people wouldn't normally talk about, right? Because you don't really hear about. It's not sexy, but it's it's important. <laughs> um, and so that's the one thing I tell people: like, we need to make talking. We need to normalize health conversations, right? Because to me, health is the new bag. Um, cause you can't get to the bag if you ain't healthy. And so uh, I am just ecstatic that, you know, we are able to do this show and have partners like Johnson and Johnson who provide, you know, well needed resources to our audience after you listen. But more importantly, they're providing medical experts who have an understanding of the subject matter and that, you know, they're all committed to the health outcomes of our guests. And so, having that lived experience through the hip hop artists, but then having that medical expert is just great because you have that balance and, and being able to just encourage people to take care of themselves, Monique, that's the important thing is, you know, you can't have, you know, your show unless you're healthy. And and I've just gone through so many challenges over the last five years from a health perspective that I realized I'm not anything without my health. And I just want to make sure that our culture gets that and they understand it because we do have some unhealthy um, habits that are within hip hop and just within our culture and community overall. And, you know, the, the more we can start really taking care of ourselves and, and getting people to understand that, you know, it's what you eat, it's, it's how you think, it's how you act, it, the mental health, how you think, act and feel is so important, but what you put into your body and, you know, the fat intake, the salt intake, like all of that matters. Like we won't be around. We can make all this money and be on, you know, the most stream record on, the on you know, every platform online or on social media or win the lottery. But none of that matters if you don't have your health. Like none of it matters. Yeah. And it's it's, it's so funny you mentioned that because I, so I turned 35 last year. And so I've been like really big on like, you know, I'm getting the mindset of, do I want to have kids? What is, you know, I got my first physical at 35 and I'm like, oh my gosh, I've never had a physical before. And so I got my blood work done and I came back, I found out I'm like anemic, I have low iron, I have all these things, I have low vitamin D. And so I found out, and just in some of our research, you know, you talk about like health preventative measures that also your health and your blood work is tied to your mental health. So So if you're not taking vitamins, like vitamin D, especially in women, a lot of black women suffer from depression because they have low vitamin D. Absolutely. And so, you know, that is just so important. And, you know, I, I'm like a huge uh, person. I'm, I love black Twitter. I go on black Twitter and now black women are talking about taking supplements. Like what type of supplements are you taking? Are you taking magnesium? Are you taking um, zinc, you know, to feel good, to feel good about yourself? So I think that is, it's so important that people take not only, you know, measures after you found out something, but also take those preventative measures to make sure that you're a sound mind and body and spirit. Absolutely. And you talk about Monique, you being 35, you know, so you want to make sure, like you said, all your, your blood work is intact. Your levels are, are, are where they need to be. Cause especially if you do end up wanting to, to bear children, you got to look at what's going on in terms of maternal, you know, um, health, you know, for black women and how black women uh, who become pregnant, you know, are more susceptible to either not having, you know, access to proper care while they're pregnant or, you know, dying at childbirth. It's so many different things that happen. And so I want you to take charge of, you know, and live that Mebo lifestyle right now while you are at this age of 35 so that when you do get to be 40 and 50, you're already equipped and you're focusing on those things so that you won't have these health issues and problems that we see oftentimes plague the African-American community. 
Yes. So that, that is, I'm so happy that you're talking about this because, you know, people glamorize, you know, people have jobs. They don't use their health insurance, like preventative health care. No, they don't. You know, you, you pay all this money for health insurance and you don't use it. So I love that. And health insurance covers um, therapy as well. So yeah. yes, it does. Yes, it does. And, and at the Mebo show, all we want you to do is, you know, take advantage of your resources that you have right there. The EAP programs, everything that HR has to offer within your company. If you're an entrepreneur, you know, make sure you're getting that insurance, health insurance, disability insurance and talking to go see your primary health care physician. Don't be afraid to go to the doctor. Yes. And so we're going to wrap up. Uh, so I think the, the next question I have for you is, you know, you are, you know, a cultural architect. You've done all of these amazing things. And if no one takes anything away from this podcast today, what are, what would you deem as three very important resources that every person needs as they embark on their mental health journey? Wow. Three important resources. The first one is, you you got to have a support system from a mental health perspective. So I call it your starting five. Mm-hmm. You know, we're going to be in basketball season soon, starts back up the end of October. You can't start a game until you got five players on the court. So I want you to not start your week until you at least got a, a list of five people that you could call if you're having a bad day. Because we know somebody's going to be busy, somebody's going to be out of town. But you need to have that Rolodex or your wellness team, right? Who's in your starting five for wellness? Um, the second thing is not being a, afraid to recognize what you're dealing with. Um, I coined this new acronym for RAP, R-A-P, wrapping through your, your, your uh, mental health challenges. The R is for recognizing those unfamiliar feelings because, you know, sometimes you'll have this feeling and you'll act like, whoa, what was that? You know, and you might pretend that it didn't happen. But when you recognize, you have to accept it and acknowledge that it actually happened um, because a lot of times we'll compartmentalize stuff and we don't want to deal with it. And we'll say, oh, I'll wait and deal with that later if it rears its ugly head again. No, you got to recognize it, acknowledge it, accept it, and then process through those feelings. And what I want you to do is to process it with a professional. Don't try to do that on your own. That is when you need to call your doctor or, you know, go seek counseling or therapy or go see a psychiatrist who is also a medical doctor if need be, right? Um, pay attention. Listen to what our medical experts from Johnson & Johnson have to say as they point you in the right direction for community resources and that sort of thing. And then the last thing I'll say for your mental health and wellness is don't be afraid to set healthy boundaries, both personally and professionally for yourself. That is the one thing that I wish I could tell young Das, as I call myself sometimes when I'm posting throwback pictures is, uh, I wish I had to set up more boundaries for myself, not allowing me to take work calls after 7.30 unless it was absolutely necessary. Learning how to, you know, be present if I'm on vacation and setting up those boundaries that I'm not going to take those calls while I'm on vacation or I'm going to steal 15 minutes out of the day for myself as I'm going through this 15-hour day. Like, just setting up boundaries and implementing healthy coping mechanisms, I think, are all super important. Awesome. I love all three of those. And I would definitely be implementing those as well as I add to my own mental health journey, which I think is so important. Um, and so I, I just want you to tell my listeners where they can find you, what you have coming up next. I know you have a, you probably have a new episode coming up. Give us all your socials. Let us know where we can find uh, Ms. Shanti Das. Absolutely. Thank you. So you can follow me personally on Instagram at Shanti Das, S-H-A-N-T-I-D-A-S 404. You can follow the Mebo show at the Mebo show on Instagram. 
uh, on YouTube. It's at the Mebo Show, so you can see all the live videos of the podcast. And then you can access the podcast. You can subscribe and and rate it and review it on all the major platforms like Spotify, Apple Music, iHeartMedia, everywhere you find all your major podcasts. And then also um, check out my nonprofit, Silence to Shame, at Silence to Shame on Instagram and the website. If you need mental health resources, you can go to Silence to Shame at www.silencetoshame.com. We have, like, as I mentioned, some really incredible additional um, podcast episodes that are coming out. Next season, uh, we'll start recording, hopefully being able to bring in athletes and actors and that sort of thing. But right now we are focused on Hip Hop 50. And uh, I'm just going to be, you know, um, you know, on tour, <clears throat> speaking at different colleges and universities over the fall, bringing the Mebo show to some universities. So, yeah, check us out. Follow us and um, just make sure that you are focusing on your own mind and body wellness because it's so important. Awesome. Well, Shanti, it's been a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you so much for joining us today and dropping so many gems. Thank you for being an icon, a trailblazer, and stepping out on faith and really helping move a movement forward that is so important. That is our mental health. So you all that are listening, make sure you listen, like, and subscribe. And every week we'll just continue to give you mo. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll talk soon.